I'm Tavin Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavin Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavinasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guests for this episode, Bertina Ceccarelli and Suzanne Tedrick. Bertina is the CEO of Empower, one of the most successful nonprofits in North America committed to helping young adults and military-connected individuals launch tech careers. And Suzanne is the author of Women of Color in Tech and a cloud computing technical trainer for a Fortune 500 technology company. They are also the co-authors of Innovating for Diversity, Lessons from Top Companies Achieving Business Success Through Inclusivity. And I'm pleased to have both of them join me today to discuss their book and the insights they share. Hi, Bertina and Suzanne. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. It's so terrific to, to be here with you this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. So we've all heard the term DEI before, either in our organizations or in some business article we read. But as you point out in your book, while most of us might be familiar with the terms diversity, equity, and inclusion, I don't think many people really understand the intention and outcomes we're after and why they matter. So to make this conversation really meaningful and impactful for our listeners, I was wondering if we could start with just a brief explanation of what do we mean by diversity? And I'll tell you why I wanted to start here after your explanation. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned that because when Bertina and I were writing uh, Innovating for Diversity, we were very intentional that this was something that we wanted to cover first and foremost to have that framework for the remainder of the conversation that we would have throughout the book. Uh, But taking those terms apart individually, when we talk about diversity, it's really thinking about those different aspects of our identity uh, that we uh, identify with. So commonly when we're we're having the conversation, at least in the corporate context of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, we're usually thinking more along the lines of gender. You may be thinking more along the lines of race, uh, but it's a little bigger than that. We're really thinking about age. We're thinking about the different generations that are coming into the Uh, into the workforce. We're thinking about culture. We're thinking about where people have grown up, their customs, their religion. We're thinking about ability, uh, both the uh, physical disabilities that one might have versus maybe the not visible disabilities that one might have. And so diversity really is trying to figure out all of these different dimensions that make us who are and I do think it's important for uh, businesses and organizations to, to understand that particular nuance. Bertina, anything you want to add? I would say just a, a word about inclusion. And I, you know, one of the things that we write in the book about is that um, without inclusion and equity, diversity can be toxic. 
And in my own experience, um, what I've observed is that there can be a lot of focus, right, on hiring for diversity. Um, and some companies do a fantastic job at really trying to uh, 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 include in their organization people from all walks of life, recognizing, right, that the very qualities they bring that are different from one another is good for their business. But here's what happens. Once you have a diverse set of people in the organization, they're oftentimes uh, disillusioned because all the goodness of their diversity is diluted out because they're evaluated for assimilation, right? So think about that for a moment. You might hire for diversity, but if you're managing for assimilation, all the experiences that you hope to benefit from as a business disappears. So that's why inclusion is so important, is to actually recognize, reward, and encourage all of the diverse points of view and experiences that a diverse hiring program can yield. You want to be able to take advantage of that on the back end once you have individuals within the organization. And I think oftentimes we see in many companies, the inclusion component really falls short. And you know, turnover at various levels of the organization because those diverse experiences aren't valued. So there's a common argument I see rising whenever there's a discussion around diversity, particularly on LinkedIn, but I imagine it's happening elsewhere as well, that we shouldn't be hiring people based on their skin color, what part of the world they belong from, or whatever other demographic indicator we want to use, but instead we should be hiring and promoting for a quote-unquote diversity of thought. And what I find problematic about it is that there's never any push to explain what that means and how do you quantify it? I mean, how do you have a diversity of thought without differences in various demographic elements that lead to different life experiences, values, and perspectives? So I'm wondering if you've come across this idea that the focus of diversity initiatives shouldn't be on hiring and or promoting people from different backgrounds, experiences, and disabilities, but rather should be about promoting a diversity of thought. And is that a realistic understanding to have about what kind of diversity we should be promoting, not just in the workplace, but in terms of who we promote to leadership positions? And Tinder, I'll, um, I'll, I'll try to take this question. Uh, so I, I think, yes, we, we want to have diversity of thought and experiences, but the likelihood that we are going to be the people that really you know, hire for that or look for that considering what our own biases are, our likelihoods and our tendencies to seek out people who we get along with or, you know, have shared experiences. Um, I, I feel like that's not something that um, given our own inherent unconscious biases that we're going to be really great at doing. When we're looking at people from all of these different dimensions, they're bringing so many rich things to the table, their experiences, work experience, education. Uh, so diversity of thought is, uh, to me, when we're, we're really thinking about going towards diverse audiences, that's kind of built in versus me saying that I am so fully aware of my own biases that, you know, I, I'm going to hire the most diverse talent because likelihood of that isn't. And I think it lends into a, an argument about meritocracy. And I think, honestly, when we're looking at most organizations, we, we can kind of say that a meritocracy, while on paper sounds great, we have not seen that in practice. We haven't seen that be the case. 
uh, especially when we look at the advancements of uh, certain populations um, in certain industries and in certain positions. So um, I appreciate where the where the thought comes from, um, but I don't necessarily think that um, by recruiting for diverse audiences precludes having the diversity of thought within uh, within our environments. And Bertina, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add. Yeah, you know, look, I would just say that I think diversity of thought is not just informed by what you might have studied in college or your past work experiences, but the kinds of problems you needed to solve and the issues you might have had to overcome. And an individual with uh, physical disabilities may have a very different set of problem solving abilities than those without. And it's a set of experiences that comes uniquely from that lived experience that should be valued um, and brought into the mix as we think about diversity writ large. I'm loving the answer you both have given because I think you've allowed us to go into talking about the next word, equity. Because here again, I think this is a concept that gets narrowed down and loses its real meaning and impact. For example, as you point on your book, when we talk about equity, the focus often tends to be around fair compensation, but equity is about more than just earning equal pay. And I'd appreciate it if you could clarify what equity really means and what it requires. Sure. I, so in the book, we, we talk a little bit more about those differences, because as you said, um, I, I think there's this very surface level understanding and pay is definitely part of the conversation, but it's a little deeper than that. It's really thinking about the access to opportunity, the access to the tools that are actually going to make you successful. It's not a conversation about equality, whereas with equality, we're worried about making sure that everyone gets the exact same thing. There's no imbalance, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, that might not be what I need to be successful. It might not be what my colleague needs to be successful. It's really taking a step back to look at here is where my employees are in terms of their skills, in terms of their development. And now I am going to holistically figure out what are going to be the things that they need to be successful? Do they need mentoring? Do they need sponsorship? Do they need uh, additional skilling? I'm going to be a, taking a more individualized approach to each and every person on my team versus just giving a cookie cutter solution that may not be helpful for them in, in any capacity. You know, something I would add is there's been quite a lot written about the leadership skills of the 21st century and empathy and listening as being, you know, top of the list. And I think it's those sorts of qualities that lean into what Suzanne is saying is that when you've got the ability to really form a trusting relationship and create a psychologically safe environment for your team, you're able to home in on what is it that this individual, individual needs to be successful and productive and contribute at their highest level to this organization. Let me pour into that individual the training and support required so that they can do their best work. And it that, that comes at a cost, right? It comes at training leaders to be that specific and that intentional. Uh, and I think those are the kind of skills that all of us will need to lean into more um, as our workforce becomes, just in terms of numbers, more diverse. 
Okay, Bertina and Suzanne, I think it's becoming clear how when we hear people talk about DEI in broad strokes, we're really losing a lot of the context and nuance, which leads us to the last word, inclusion. And this one resonates with me personally, as here in Quebec, there's been this ongoing push and idea that immigrants and people from different cultures and religious communities have to integrate into the white Francophone society for them to be considered Quebecers, to the point that our government is now passing laws and mandates that force certain minoritized groups, including children here, to hide their differences from the public eye. And I want to share this because I know it's easy for us to look at this in terms of the divisive challenges facing the U.S. right now, but I think... It's important that we reflect on this regardless of where we live, because other countries are also grappling with demographic changes that will impact how they see themselves. And when it comes to inclusion, I think most people think of it in terms of psychological safety. But I'd appreciate it if you could help us understand what inclusion really involves, especially when we talk about such terms like integration and tolerance when speaking of various minoritized groups. Uh, so happy to talk about that. So um, inclusion is not covering, which is what you what you've just described, where it's I'm downplaying aspects of myself, my identity for acceptance into this uh, particular group. Inclusion is also not just allowing people to come in, but then people feeling as if they need to stay within their particular Places. So there, it's almost like a, a bubble within the, the bubble. You're still not uh, you're still not being asked to the dance, so to speak, and you're not interacting and, and mingling. So that is not what inclusion is. Um, and it go and you're to your point, it goes beyond just the psychological safety. We we think about the language that we use. We think about the particular office customs that we might have. We might think about how we uh, choose to celebrate certain um, holidays and activities. Uh, it's really taking a more, again, holistic approach about what are the patterns and behaviors we're exhibiting that make people feel like not, not so much they're inclu included, because obviously that's part of the conversation, but that I belong here, that I that there's no doubt in my mind that this is where I'm supposed to be and I'm doing you know, I'm doing my best work and I'm, I'm feeling my my best self. So it's really looking at things such as practices, languages, policies, all of these different things that are contributing to making people feel like they belong in those environments. One of the things that I'll just uh, say generally and this, uh, as an observation on this dialogue around the meaning of DEI specifically and leading into each word, and I'm so glad this is where you started the interview, and it's reflective of a conversation Suzanne and I had while we were writing the book. And I'll share with you, I my point of view going into the design of the book was that, you know, don't people know what DEI is? Do we really need to revisit uh, the definitions of DEI and why it's important? Haven't we moved beyond that? And Suzanne very wisely said, Absolutely not. We need to revisit this context and set a tone and remind everybody and, in fact, introduce some new readers uh, and those who um, may have collapsed the term DEI into a single set of ideas. And I'm so glad that she did. Right. And that was just an example of the, the kinds of conversations that she and I had very openly and transparently as we wrote the book. 
Well, I want to thank you both for walking us through this. I know that people who listen to my podcast know me through my speaking work, whether from a keynote or a workshop training of mine they attended. But I'm also a writer, and so I'm glad you've helped elucidate the meaning and context of these words beyond the pithy understandings we get when we mash them together in acronyms like DEI and so forth. And with this understanding of what diversity, equity, and inclusion really entails, I'd like to talk with you about the symbiotic relationship between innovation and diversity. Now, there's been countless studies done that have shown the empirical benefits of increasing diversity, not just within the workforce, but at the leadership level to a company's ability to innovate, as well as benefits to its productivity, agility, and bottom line. But as you point out in your book, not a lot of work has been done to understand how innovation can advance diversity. Of course, promoting diversity alone in today's organizations still faces an uphill battle. And you point out that there are two reasons why we can't make any real traction on diversifying our organization and those who we put in leadership roles. So before we talk about how innovation can drive diversity, could you talk about what's causing diversity to not only stall, but encounter open resistance? So, you know, Tavnir, we, uh, uh, Susan and I really uh, enjoyed writing this particular section because we did a deep dive into some of the fixed attitudes and fixed practices that really can hold a lot of companies back and prevent them from thinking creatively uh, and getting, frankly, underneath some of the core root problems preventing diversity programs from really flourishing. And you know, some of those fixed attitudes and practices uh, can be traced back to uh, the CEO, uh, to senior leadership. It can be rooted in practices like, hmm, we've, already re- we've always recruited from the alma mater of the CEO. Um, or his or her set of direct reports. And that's just a custom. And it becomes so ingrained as a practice within the organization as to almost become invisible. That it is something that is just so accepted that to challenge any one of these fixed practices or fixed ideas uh, becomes um, antithetical to the culture of the organization. So one of the ideas that we advance is that Um, in order to be able to really challenge these fixed ideas and fixed practices, you have to go back to the theory of innovation and sometimes really start from with a very different mindset and a different set of objectives to be able to tease out and name those two things that could be holding back an organization. And certainly I think when, um, during our conversations with leaders and our, our research, we, you know, we can see why people might tend to cling on to these things, especially given the, the, the social and economic backdrop that we, that we have now with uh, the economy being what it is and, you know, not having money, not having resources. And so it might be easier to kind of fall back into these attitudes and, and practices. So I think uh, Bertie and I certainly have a lot of empathy for for leaders in these organizations, uh, but nonetheless, there still has to be holding them for accountability for improving the outcomes of their uh, for their DEI programs. So as I said, in your book, you make the case that there's a symbiotic relationship between diversity and innovation, where diversity not only fuels innovation, but innovation can drive greater diversity. 
And the way innovation can accomplish this is through what you've identified through your work as being the five cultural characteristics necessary for innovation. So could you share what these five characteristics are and how can they help us overcome those roadblocks of fixed attitudes and fixed practices so real and enduring diversity can take hold in our organization? And to your point, you just mentioned, Suzanne, we could actually now hold leadership accountable to saying, yes, we are going to stick with this and not just do it as a nice to have thing when economic conditions allow for it. Yeah, uh, this was, and, and this really kind of undergirds so many of the case studies as we looked at, well, what does innovation really mean when we think about diversity? Because as you pointed out, um, there have been many documented studies that illustrate increase in profits and share share price, et cetera, when you've got diverse teams, even when it, relate, when it comes to the uh, revenue generated through innovation. Um, but nobody really has taken a look at how do principles of innovation apply to improving diversity programs? And, and when you look at the starting place historically for so many DEI programs, it's grounded in compliance. It's a risk management strategy. Um, and you know, you think about those words, risk management, compliance, it doesn't necessarily lead to innovation. Uh, it leads more to this notion of let us go through a checklist and make sure that we're doing all the things we ought to be doing. Now, there's not anything wrong with that, right? There's some really important compliance issues that companies need to abide by. But to really, truly innovate for diversity, the five principles that we've advanced um, really are just very pragmatic. First and foremost is courage, right? It takes courage for any one individual, whether in middle management or at the senior levels, to challenge some of those fixed practices and fixed attitudes. The second is trust, is really creating an environment where there is an understanding that when those practices are challenged, it is done with the best interest of the organization in mind and a trusting and respectful relationship with one's peers. The third is collaboration, recognizing that no one program that's as culturally deep as diversity, equity, and inclusion can be done from any one single office or one individual. Uh, leadership is a, a core, core idea that really goes to the very heart uh, Tapia, or something I think you mentioned, uh, which is that unwavering commitment that requires a level of uh, investment and focus from the CEO, which we think is necessary, but not sufficient, right? Because there needs to be buy-in at all levels of the organization. But unwavering is the key because we're going to go through economic cycles where it might feel like here's an area where it's easy to cut back, but the long-term implications uh, and impact of culture can be deeply felt for a generation. Uh, uh, so we've covered leadership, collaboration, trust, uh, and courage uh, really as sort of the central ideas. Um, the fifth one to add would be risk-taking. And that's different from trust and courage because it's really a calculated approach to understand what are going to be some of the best programs to invest in for what output. So a careful calculation of what you expect the outcome to be. Suzanne, what, what would you add to that? 
No, I think you I think you hit that right on the on the head. And I I can't stress enough. I, I actually had a conversation earlier today with a colleague. Uh, leadership is very important. Leadership buy-in. Uh, we have to see our leaders not just saying DEI is important. We have to see them doing things that prove that DEI is important. We have to hold them accountable. Uh, we have to have metrics. Uh, so uh, not, not to say to minimize the other principles that we talked about, but having strong leadership that feels very passionately and very strongly that DEI is important to the lifeblood of their organization uh, is, is key. So Bertina and Suzanne, I'd like to take what we've been talking about and apply it to a specific challenge organizations face and will continue to face in the years ahead. And that is retaining and growing the talent pool within their organization. Now, since the start of the year, much of the focus was on companies laying off thousands of workers in anticipation of a slowing global economy. And yet, as we all know, any kind of economic slowdown is followed by a period of growth. And unlike in years past, the big challenge for organizations will be find the people they need to help them grow. And part of that will require making a more concerted effort to hire, develop, and promote people from underrepresented groups. So what are some of the common challenges minoritized groups face in moving into leadership positions, and how can we use those innovation cultural characteristics to help expand who we identify and develop as future leaders in our organization? So I think specifically when thinking about underrepresented groups and leading into more senior or leadership positions, I think there's a number of reasons why we, we see this gap. Uh, going back to our conversation about equity, again, not so much the conversation about pay, but really thinking about opportunity equity. So are they given challenges? Are they giving projects that are meaningfully going to help them to build their skill set to increase their uh, sphere of influence and to meet others who can be potential mentors or sponsors? Or do we have them in these roles where, again, the measurement of impact is very, very small. We're not giving them that type of exposure to other people, other things. Um, and so what, we'll, what we've seen during the research of our book is that while we're getting better at finding uh, underrepresented groups and bringing them in, perhaps in more entry level or, or first time professional jobs, we're not doing a great job of growing them uh, beyond mid-level and keeping them. So I think it's very important for leaders and, and anyone who's going to be the, the manager of, of people to understand that, yes, you do need to balance the needs of the organization, but you also need to meet people where they are to be successful. If people need mentoring, if people need strong sponsorship, and I know this is slightly controversial, but if people need to have remote work, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit more mindful of what does it take for this person to shine and be successful and where can I possibly meet them to be able to do that versus I've got numbers, I've got deadlines and, you know, it's either this or, or nothing. So being really more empathetic about these different populations who are looking to, to advance within their organization. You know, I think one really great example of what Suzanne is talking about 
is the case study of Zendesk and where they observed, we are not promoting women engineers uh, at the level that we would like. And when we look at the senior executive team, um, we are really thin on women. So, so what can we do to help change that? Uh, and it would have been, you know, one approach is to go hire a couple of very senior women from the outside. Uh, but they also took the approach, let us find what we could do to nurture talent from within. And it took a couple of iterations, but they stuck with this and they landed on a highly successful mentorship program. It was very structured, required support from across the organization, volunteers to sign up to say, I want to do this. I want to be a part of it. Uh, I am willing to go through some uh, deep training to really absorb what is required of me specifically within the Zendesk mentoring program. Yeah, there was a whole set of activities, right, that really built the leadership skills through mentoring for the women who had been identified as high potential. And today, right, they have uh, a higher than industry average percentage of women in leadership levels. They continue to invest in the program. That's just a really good, good example of it's easy to say, oh, we're going to do a mentoring program, right? But to do it well and to something Suzanne said earlier, assign metrics and really have uh, ownership accountability for the, for the person who's running that program, that's vital for it to be successful in the case of Zendesk it is. I'm glad that we're focusing on what leaders need to do to use innovation to help drive diversity here. As I'd like to ask you both, what would you tell the leaders who are listening to us right now what can they do to promote this symbiotic relationship between diversity and innovation where one feeds into the other? As we said at the beginning of this conversation, there are these five cultural characteristics of innovation that we can use to promote diversity. So what are some actions leaders can put into practice to make their workplaces more diverse, equitable, and inclusive? Uh, so I think the, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I think leaders at least should start from is making sure that you're having your your conversations with your with your staff, with your the people that you are leading. And, and when I say conversations, I don't mean, you know, where you're the person that's kind of telling, you know, this is what you need to do. This is the company line. But really listening to employees, really listening and understanding what are the, the things that they need to be successful, where have they seen challenges, maybe they have their own ideas about how indeed we should be moving forward. The In the Zendesk example, it actually was born out of a, a random conversation uh, that leaders took a hold of and just made it into uh, something even, even greater. So I think for leaders, it's really taking the time to stop and listen to what employees are, are saying um, and developing that empathy for the employees so that as you're moving into more conversations with perhaps other leadership on how we should move forward, you have more of a basis of understanding because you you know what your employees are are, are telling you. You've you've listened. You've you've got that you know you you've got that kind of proof point as to how you can be an advocate for certain types of programs or certain types of investment. So, so I, I think without a doubt, it, it's just very important for for leaders to take the time to stop. Uh, listen to their employees and reflect. I think uh, the second thing I would add to that is um, 
we have in our interviews, you know, heard a fair amount of frustration from chief diversity officers that somehow it has become their problem single-handedly to solve. So a very specific action for a leader to take is to recognize that the role of the chief development officer is absolutely vital, probably a good role to have report directly to the CEO in partnership with HR, but also in community with hiring managers up and down the organization and to really help establish goals that are uh, jointly owned uh, and that there are, there are visible measures um, and that each business unit is held to some accountability for the work that they are doing to really build, uh, retain and develop diverse teams throughout their organizations. Um, and that takes leadership. And, and going back to our innovation principles, it also takes courage. I'm actually glad, Bertina, that you brought up, and Suzanne, you brought it back to the forefront, the example of Zendesk here in terms of what leaders can do. Because I love doing this on my show, playing the devil's advocate. As we were talking about how leaders need to listen, part of what's required, too, is that employees need to know that there is that environment where if I share something, not only will I be heard, but some form of action will be taken, whether it's just taking into consideration what we're saying or having this epiphany of realizing, wow, here's a blind spot we didn't know we had and we have to do something about it. So I'm just imagining because I have had conversations with some leaders where this is the struggle they have, where the executive leadership will emphasize, look, diversity is important. We want to help increase it in not just, as you were pointing out earlier, Suzanne, up to the mid-level, but to go as high up in the organization And yet they would point out to me, but did you take a look at who's the executive branch of the organization? And I don't need to paint the picture to you when I looked around the room to see what it was. So if we're saying it's about leaders needing to listen better, and Zendesk is a great example of what happens when we're not listening. Could you share how did they make that pivot? So for those who are listening saying, yeah, I can see that, but I think people are not really hearing us. What can we learn from that example? How do we really make an environment where we can share insights and that it actually leads to real change and action? I would say starting at a reasonable place and not expecting that you're going to see wholesale change overnight, right? I mentioned that the Zendesk veteran program was iterated on. First time they did it wasn't particularly successful, but they started small enough. Risk was tolerated. They learned. And now as a tech company, you're agile, you learn from your mistakes, you improve, you do better. And that's exactly the innovation lens that they used for the veteran program. I would say the apprenticeship case study that we did uh, for Citi, uh, the financial services company, is very similar, right? Somebody observed a program that they could be doing better and hiring better and piloted an apprenticeship program, which had never been done before in the organization, but they started small. They started hiring four, five, um, figured out how to do it well. And today they've operationalized it across the organization where now they hire in the hundreds. So uh, again, I think a a, a level of understanding around software development, Uh, principles, right, which is kind of at the heart of innovation, equally applies to some of these tactics that can be deployed to dramatically improve 
DEI practices around uh, throughout a company. And I think just to piggyback off of what, what Bertina was talking about, for the companies that we had the opportunity to, to talk with, uh, at no point was it perfection. At no point, you know, we're dealing with the unknown, we're, we're dealing with, you know, what we know about the, the metrics on, on DEI in general. Uh, sometimes there wasn't really support, sometimes there wasn't enough people, sometimes there's not enough money. Um, and so it'll be very real, very real, real challenges. And so I think it's important for any uh, organization that's leading into a DEI conversation or embarking on a DEI program. Uh, I know it's cliche, but it is a journey. It is very much a journey. It is not a, a you know, check the box, I'm done, we're diverse, and we're good to go. It really is something that evolves over time. It's It's more about making sure that we have that common understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's trying, it's failing, it's doing better in the, in the, in the long run. And so I think it's, it is important for leaders to have that mindset and to be okay with not being okay sometimes, but just really having the innovator's spirit in that you keep improving over time. Susanna Bartina, I want to thank you for this thoughtful and refreshingly different take on the issue of diversity in today's workplaces. I think having this clearer understanding about what we should be doing in terms of addressing the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion through the lens of innovation will help those in leadership roles right now to know what they need to do differently going forward to create a supportive and encouraging environment where every employee can succeed and grow. So my thanks to you both for this revealing and instructive conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Bertina and Suzanne's work and their book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tamfinisteer.com slash LBC. And if you'd like to learn more about my speaking work, check out the speaking page on our website at tamfinisteer.com, where you can learn more about the subjects I cover in my keynotes and corporate workshops as well as to hear from other leaders about their experiences hearing me speak about the challenges leaders face today. And before I go, I'd like to ask if you could take a moment here to rate and review my podcast to help others discover and benefit from listening to my podcast. I'm Tavidis here, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.